Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to be looking today in uh, Mark chapter 4. For those who are newer here, we are really glad to have everyone here, glad that you are here to participate with us. And um, we're going through Mark's gospel, taking a a long time just to walk uh, with the Lord through that gospel. And we're right now in Mark chapter 4, where we're going to be going over the parables. Obviously, we'll, on Easter, be taking a a little bit of a break to... uh, to look at the resurrection of our Lord. But right now we're going through the parables. So we're going to be looking in Mark chapter 4. Before we start, I'm going to go ahead and pray uh, that the Lord would speak to us and encourage you to uh, pray along with me. Lord, we are so grateful for how you labor and work and speak to us. Lord, we pray that you would uh, be speaking to us today. Lord, as we're looking at the parable of the sower and we're aware that the seed can fall in many places, and Lord, the fault is never with your word, but rather with our hearts and whether we're ready and prepared or not. So Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in the soil of our heart, that you would make us receptive to your word and to your kingdom and that it would be planted deep in us, and that it would bear fruit. Lord, we pray this for ourselves and for our children. Lord, your work goes across generations. We also even pray for other congregations in our area that are right now hearing your word. Lord, because your, your work is not uh, restricted just to us. Lord, your kingdom is growing. It is expanding uh, across generations, across congregations, across ethnicities, across every barrier we would put up. And so we pray for the fruitful growth of your kingdom this day in us, here, and around the globe, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin by looking here at Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. Uh, It's a little bit longer passage of Scripture. This is one of the longest parables, but I encourage you, hear and listen and receive the Word of God. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, multiplying 30 60, or even a hundred times. Then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. 
Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like the seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. When I was a young man, we moved down to Georgia, and when we moved down there, my parents bought 17 acres of land, and so they decided we were going to have a garden. And our garden, what we called a garden, was almost an acre big. So it was quite a project. We would spend uh, each spring, uh, my dad and I would go out, we had a tractor, and we would spend basically an entire day harrowing and plowing and preparing the soil, and then you plant the seed, and you love to have a crop. And, and being inexperienced at doing any of this, we had uh, you know, not done this before, we soon discovered several things. Number one, what, what every garden produces best is rocks and weeds. Not what you're trying to grow, but rather rocks and weeds. And then in Georgia, there would be drought during the summer, and you worry about whether everything is going to produce. And this isn't like a little garden in your backyard. It's not easy to try and water an entire acre. But somehow, amazingly still, the plants would come up, and it would seem like we were going to have a good uh, crop coming forward. Well, one year, we were out there, and we had a lot of corn planted because we would eat a lot of corn, and we're looking forward to it. But the corn had sprouted, and the stalks were a couple of inches tall, and we went out, and a bunch of them were plucked up out of the ground. And then we discovered there was this bird, and it was plucking up the stalks, eating what was left of the seed that the stalks were growing out of, and then hopping to the next stalk and plucking it and eating it. So my mom said, boy, get a gun, get out there and get rid of that bird. So I went around to go get this bird, and then our next-door neighbor, we only have one neighbor that could even see our house, but she was a nature lover, and she called my mom frantic. Did you know that Brett is out with a gun, and he's trying to get this bird? And uh, I don't think my mom admitted that, yes, because I sent him out to go get that bird, but my mom was like, well, it's kind of eaten our crops, and she said, but it's the brown thrasher, the Georgia State bird. And so a little while later, I came home, and my mom informed me about the phone call, and I said, well, it's now a dead brown thrasher. It's a dead state bird. And I bring this up because it's a lot like the parable. Now, in Jesus' parable, there's not a redneck with a pellet gun chasing a bird. However, you see the struggle in trying to get a crop. We, we get removed from this because when you and I want something to eat, what do we do? Right. Having grown up doing this, Linda wanted a garden when we got married. And I said, I have a garden. It's the produce aisle at the local Safeway. Because I realize how hard it is to try and grow. Farming is tragic hard work. And we forget that because we're not involved in the growing of our own food most of the time. But the people Jesus is speaking to, they're fully well aware of all of this. And so he uses this parable to teach us regarding his kingdom. And so we're going to dive into this parable, and it's really important. And the first thing to understand is the priority of this parable. Now, why I say that it's got a priority, I'm going to bring up a number of points here that Mark is using to communicate to us that this is the, really the most important of the parables. When you understand this, you've got the basic orientation to understand the others and to really understand Jesus and his kingdom. Now, why do I say that? Number one, this parable is listed first among all the parables. And that's not only true here in Mark's gospel, but in Matthew and Luke. Both of them gather the parables together as well. Mark's got them in Mark 4. In Matthew, it's Matthew chapter 13. Matthew actually gives seven parables. But always, in every gospel, this is the first of the parables. And that's their way of communicating. It really is kind of the foundational parable. Secondly, Notice it's the only parable in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus actually gives us his interpretation. He's helping us to understand how to interpret parables. And so he does it, but he gives it for this parable, not for any of the others. 
Thirdly, if you notice in Mark chapter 4, even though there's a number of parables we're going to be going through, this parable, the questions surrounding it, and the explanation are 50% of the chapter. I mean, it is a huge portion. We're going to see a number of other parables. Uh, The parables we'll be going over next week, there's actually two parables put together, and it's only four verses. Okay, this was 20 verses to get through. So Mark's kind of letting us know, pay attention to this parable. Fourthly, notice again, and I brought this up last week when we discussed parables in general, Jesus begins and ends this parable with the word or the command to hear. Uh, In Mark chapter 4, verse 3, and then in verse 9, notice he begins, the NIV's got it, listen, it's literally the word hear, that that same word that's used in Shema, hear, O Israel. Uh, He's saying, listen to what I'm telling you, pay attention to this. And then he concludes it by saying, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's actually just two words in Greek, which is the same word as listen, and then just the verb form saying, make sure you listen, pay attention to this. So when he begins and ends a parable with this command to listen, that is a a way of saying, you've got to pay attention, give careful uh, attention to what I'm talking about. And then fifth, Jesus indicates actually that understanding this parable is going to help us to uh, understand the other parables. Notice in Mark 4.13, Jesus told them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? If you're not getting this, you're not going to be able to get the others. This one's kind of foundational. It's the door into the parable, so to speak. And so if you're not understanding this, you're not going to get the rest, which is why it is the first of the parables and the one that we are given the interpretation. So even though this one can seem very straightforward when we listen to it, yes, Crops are hard to come by. Uh, Jesus is letting us know this is foundational to understanding what I am teaching you through the parables of the kingdom. So it's important that we listen, that we pay attention to this parable, because the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soils is critical if you and I are going to understand Jesus, his ministry, his kingdom, and our own faithfulness as disciples. If we want to know what it means to follow the king and his kingdom, we need to pay attention to what this parable is teaching us. So let's see, what is it that the parable is actually saying? Well, the parable itself, which is in Mark chapter 4, verses 3 to 9, is pretty simple. There's a farmer. He goes out. He's sowing his seed. Now, obviously, when he sows his seed, what's he looking for? a crop. He wants to see the seed produce a crop. But three out of the four descriptions of what happens with the seed, what ends up happening? Do they produce a crop for him? No. So three out of four things that he describes, which is actually the bulk of the parable, there is actually no fruit at the end. There's no crop from the effort. And he lists a number of ways And uh, I'm actually going to unpack this a little bit more in After Hours and go through those uh, three ways, because he mentions basically that Satan is one, the world and persecution is second, and then our own internal desires. So it's Satan, the world, and the flesh, which is the same triad we actually see back in the Garden of Eden. It's in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. It's a common triad that are there. But Jesus says these things conspire together to make the word unfruitful. And I'll talk about what it means for you and me. If we want to be disciples and we want to be faithful, we need to be aware because those are the very things that will prevent the word of God from bearing fruit in our lives. But we're going to see that's not ultimately the focus of the parable. Uh, So I'll unpack that a little bit more in after hours. But notice there's a fourth category. And that fourth category is where there's an outcome that describes producing a great crop. And Jesus even says, look, it produces 30 or 60 or 100 times what was sown. And a hundredfold return is a very, very great return. Some commentators say it would be bordering on miraculous. Some say, no, it was just a really, really good crop. But either way, Jesus is clearly saying, look, three of the cases, nothing happens. 
But in the fourth case, it produces, and it actually produces bountifully, amazingly. Now, this is the story that he's told, but the disciples were told, go back and they are looking for an interpretation. And they give this question in verses 10 to 12, uh, and, and this is the key to us understanding this parable, and it is the key to us understanding all parables, actually. So notice what happens here is, and it's important, Mark is communicating to us the priority of understanding these verses because, as I've mentioned a couple times, Mark likes to sandwich something together where he'll start with one thing and then insert something else and then come back to the first thing. And he's kind of telling you these things are closely related. Well, he does that here because it's clear he didn't do the parable of the sower and then make these statements and give the interpretation. He's giving the parable and a bunch of parables, and later on the disciples were told, you know, when he was alone, the 12 and the others who were around, they're seated around Jesus, that's when they asked. But Mark brings that forward and puts it in the middle because he's saying, you got to understand this. This is going to help you understand what the parable is about. And so what is the parable about? The parable is the secret of the kingdom of God, or some translations have the mystery of the kingdom, which I actually think is a better uh, translation. That's what's going to be central here. The parables are about the kingdom and, and what we need to understand about the kingdom. Now, what's interesting is the word that is up there that says the secret of the kingdom of God in verse 11. The Greek word is musterion, from which we get the word mystery, but it's important for us to understand what it, what it means. Now, what's really interesting is it's the only time it's used in Mark's gospel. This is it right here. Only time Mark uses it. Um, the word does not mean something that's mysterious as in, you know, cue up the creepy organ music, you know, and you're not sure what's happening here. Nor does it mean secretive like nobody could have ever seen this before. Rather, what it's dealing with is it's something that was not expected and it's surprising, and God's got to reveal it to you to help you understand what's happening. Now, the reason we know this is the place that this word is really used is um, in the book of Daniel in chapter 2. In fact, the only place it was ever used in the entire Old Testament is in Daniel 2, and it occurs eight times in Daniel 2. So Jesus here in picking this term up is referencing back to Daniel chapter 2. Now, those who've been in our congregation for a while, you know, we studied the book of Daniel. And lest we forget what it's about, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's off in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in a dream, there's this statue with the four different types of metal that we eventually find are all these kingdoms. But there's this rock that God scoops out of a mountain. He throws and it hits the feet of the statue and the statue bursts and then the rock grows into a mountain. And it's about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God coming and the kingdom of God being established and the kingdom of God growing. The only place that this word mystery or secret is used in the whole Old Testament is right there in Daniel chapter 2. And once again, it's about the kingdom that's coming. And it's also interesting because a couple of the times that Daniel uses it is when Daniel is saying, look, Nebuchadnezzar, I didn't figure this dream out because nobody could interpret the dream. He said, I didn't figure it out. The secret was revealed to me. It was given to me. And what does Jesus tell the disciples? The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. This isn't a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter that Daniel had gone through and learned all of this stuff from the Babylonian wise men or that we've done this. It is something that the Holy Spirit has to work and reveal it has to be given by God's revelation. And so this whole thing of the parables are that they are revealing the mystery of the kingdom or things that are unexpected about the kingdom of God. And what are those things? Well, the secret of the kingdom or the mystery of the kingdom begins with the fact that it has already arrived in the person the teaching, and the work of Jesus, the Messianic King. 
If you remember back in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus appears and he says, we're we're told that he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And he's telling everybody, look, the time has come. What time? Daniel chapter 2 time. There have been all of these four kingdoms. They've been there, but God is planting his kingdom. Not in the future. He's planting it now. The kingdom has arrived. And so what are we to do? Repent and believe the good news. Uh, That's what Jesus is telling us. But see, here's the thing. The Jews were expecting that, but what kind of kingdom were they expecting? They were expecting it to come in with fanfare, that Messiah was going to come in, that it was going to be this obvious thing. Is that the way Jesus came? No. It's not the way he comes at all. And so the secret, the mystery is, I'm here, I'm telling you the kingdom has come, and some of you are struggling and wondering, it doesn't seem to be what you thought it was going to be. That's not because the kingdom hasn't come, it's because you misunderstood what was coming. The problem is not what I'm doing, the problem was your perception and what you were looking for. And this explains further in the secret and the mystery of the kingdom why it's not being recognized and why it's being rejected by so many. Notice what Jesus goes on and says, you know, I'm, the secret's being given to you, those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Why? That they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be healed. What's interesting is many people believe that when the messianic king and his kingdom arrived, everybody was immediately going to submit, that the people of Israel were all going to receive him. They were going to love the Messiah. They were going to respond to God's word through the Messiah, and then he was going to wipe out the Gentile nations. But Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah because when Isaiah came and Isaiah preached about the king who was going to come and Isaiah preached the kingdom, how did the people respond to Isaiah? They didn't believe In fact, the whole point, he goes on in verses, chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, which is what Jesus is quoting here. He says, look, almost nobody's going to believe. And it's going to be like the tree has been cut down and there's nothing but a stump left. There's only going to be a small remnant that's actually going to see and understand and believe. And so Jesus is saying, don't you understand? You all thought that when the Messiah came in, of course Israel was going to receive him with open arms. Isaiah, the very prophet that prophesied to you the most about the coming king, you didn't receive the word through him. And Isaiah said you weren't going to receive the kingdom. So don't be surprised that now that the king has come, he's begun putting out the seed of the kingdom. Three out of four are doing what? nothing. They're not responding. There seems to be no effect. Now remember, this is immediately following on from um, Mark chapter 3. And you remember in Mark chapter 3, what had happened was, you remember that we started Jesus's family sets out to go visit him. And then we're told that the scribes have come down from Jerusalem, the religious authorities. And when they hear Jesus, the king proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, what was their response? Yeah, that guy's got a demon. He's filled with demon. Yet, yes, he is driving. It's true. He's driving out demons like the Old Testament prophesied that Messiah would, but he's doing it by the spirit of Satan. It's true. He's healing people, but he's doing it by the power of Satan. And then Jesus' own family shows up, and what's, what are they saying? Yeah, I think he's out of his mind. Something's gone wrong here. So Jesus is here beginning by telling this parable, saying, look, it is true. The scribes, the religious authorities are looking at me, and they're rejecting me. My own biological family is looking at me and rejecting me, but that is not unexpected. That's the secret. That's the mystery of the kingdom. The very people you might have thought would have responded have not responded. And so There's this secret because, again, we thought that the kingdom was going to come all at once and everything was going to be completed. And Jesus says, no, it's not that way. And if you remember in Daniel 2, 
the rock starts as a small rock and it grows over time until it fills the whole earth, but it's not the way you thought it would be. So the kingdom has arrived as the word is being sown, but there's a long season before the final harvest. And during that time, many are rejecting the seed of the word of God, which is exactly what's going on around Jesus. And so Notice he, he then says there in verse 11, the secret of the kingdom has been given to you, but to those who are where? On the outside. Now, if you remember back in Mark chapter 3, when his family shows up, Jesus is inside a house. He has the 12 and the others around him. And where is the family? On the outside. Okay, so Jesus is hearkening back and saying, do, do you remember what happened? And I told you my true family is those who are on the inside, those who are gathered around, those who are hearing and responding to my word. The secret of the kingdom is given to those who are on the inside. Those who are outside are rejecting the seed of the word. They are rejecting the kingdom. They do not understand and this secret is again part of why it's a secret it's a mystery is when jesus is coming who would we expect to be the people that would be out first to greet the messiah well it would be his family and the religious authorities but we've just seen in mark chapter 3 who are the two groups of people who at this stage are rejecting jesus the religious authorities, and his family. Thanks be to God, we know that later his family does respond. His brother James becomes one of the great leaders uh, in the church. But it's this upside-down expectation. And so Jesus is telling this parable, and he's describing it because he's saying the problem is not with the kingdom. The problem is your understanding of the kingdom. And if you don't understand the kingdom aright, you're going to be very, very disappointed in what is going on. Now, this is important, and it's important for us to understand. I was just actually listening uh, yesterday. You remember even John the Baptist, who said, hey, the Messiah is here. He's coming. He's going to be here any day. As John the Baptist was getting reports back of what Jesus was doing, what did John start to question? Are you... Are you really the Messiah? I mean, I was talking about you were coming in with fire and you were going to be destroying everything and it was going to be an unquenchable fire. And that's not what I'm hearing what's going on. And then Jesus actually tells him, hey, go back and tell John, remember the signs of Messiah? I'm healing, I'm driving out demons, the good news is being preached to the poor and blessed of he is he who's not offended on account of me. John, you are expecting something. Don't miss what God's actually doing because it's not meeting your expectations. Your expectations are not the point. God's expectations are the issue. And so see, when we think of all of this and we understand these false expectations, it explains why Jesus is facing so much opposition and why so much of his preaching and his ministry seems unfruitful. The problem lies not with the word, but the hardness of those who hear it. So notice again in verses 14 to 19 as he's describing it, Jesus is telling us here, and remember, three of the four descriptions say the word goes out, the, the, the seed is good. There's nothing wrong with the seed. But in one case, Satan is opposing and gobbling it up. In another, the people seem to at first respond, but as soon as pressure and, and struggle starts to come, we read in the Gospels that you know they start putting people out of the synagogue. You take your stand against Jesus, you're out of the synagogue, and people start pulling back. They don't want to be related or referenced with Jesus. Uh, and then there's just people are interested at first, but... You remember Jesus even tells a parable later. They're invited to the banquet. Well, but you know, I bought a field and I got to go see it. And I've got this going on. Jesus says all of those things are choking out the seed of the word and they can make it either be stolen, choked, or unfruitful. And so um, both the religious authorities, Jesus' biological family, uh, they've, 
they've turned aside from him and they're just referenced. That in Mark 3 is a picture of what's going to happen later. But it also, notice the last phrase, the seed that does bear fruit. That explains why the disciples are there because they would have seemed to be the least likely people. I mean, let's face it, the first four that we heard that he called Peter and Andrew, James and John, they're rough and tumble fishermen. These are, these are people who were despised by the Pharisees. They were despised by the religious authorities. But Jesus tells them, look, you are seeing and understanding the kingdom. You don't understand it all, but the fact that you are here is because the seed has taken root in you, and it is going to keep growing, and it is going to produce a great crop. So despite all the obstacles, the words going forth, it's going to bear fruit in those who truly hear, receive, and embrace it. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean for you and me today as we're hearing this parable and we're thinking about it? Because you may say, well, gee, that has something to do with them back then when Jesus first came. What does it have to do with us? And my answer is everything. Because I think we still struggle with the exact same misconceptions that caused people to miss what Jesus was doing then, and we miss what he's doing now. See, God's kingdom is not what we expect. So the, the first question that this text brings to you and I, do, do we understand the mystery of the kingdom, the secret of the kingdom? Again, and it's not that nobody's ever heard it, but our our mindset, our mind frame has to be reoriented to what God actually tells us the kingdom is. See, in Jesus' day, they're looking for a Messiah to crush the Romans, and that's going to come and bring a kingdom, and it's going to come all at once and destroy all opposition immediately. That's what they're looking and expecting. Have Christians ever wanted that or believed that? Have Christians ever thought that the kind of kingdom we want is the kind where we have the power, where God's word is honored, where righteousness is embraced and evil punished. Have Christians ever wanted that kind of a kingdom now? You see how relevant this is? And so, again, as we read the Gospels, it's not those dumb people, how did they think that? If I search my own heart, I can find the exact same thing going on in my own heart. And if you have a false expectation of what the kingdom looks like, it can leave me disoriented and confused when my experience does not line up with my expectation. I thought when the king came and I had embraced the kingdom, my life was not going to have these things in it. Right? Anybody ever experienced that? I mean, if you've been walking with Jesus more than like 43 seconds, you've experienced that. Right? The kingdom comes, it's breaking through, but there is still all kinds of opposition and struggle and difficulty. But see, here's the thing. We're following the story of this king, and he's the king who came to die. Okay, if you're not familiar with the story, you might want to put your ears in. I'm, I'm giving you a spoiler alert right now. This is where the story's going. Okay, we're about to enter Holy Week, and it begins with Palm Sunday. And all the crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And the Pharisees say, don't you realize what they're saying? They're proclaiming that you're the Messiah. What are you going to do about it? Right? And it seems like at that point in the movie, everything's worked out great. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming. Somebody remind me what happened seven, you know, five days later. Same crowd. Crucify him crucify him. That's where the story's going. See, because three out of four things of the seed, it gets choked out. It gets crushed. It's not there. And so our king was that way. And so much of the seed seems to fall on bad soil. Satan's deceiving. The world is opposing. People are lured away by their own desires. And if we don't understand that, if we don't recognize that, it causes us to miss God's actual work in our lives. See, this false expectation of the kingdom that was there in Jesus' day has led God's people turning to other things to bring about what they respect, uh, expect. Has anybody in here ever heard of the Crusades? It's 
what we're doing. We're expecting a certain kind of kingdom. It's led to revolts. It's led to all kinds of political machinations because we got to help Jesus out because the kingdom's not quite working out like I thought. Okay? We, we run into this. So, And this is not just, it would be easy for me to say, well, those crazy Christians back there with the Crusades. Can I tell you, we, we fall into the same exact thing today. Right here in good old America, Christians fall into the same temptations. We are disillusioned as it seems things are going against what we expected. It's not working out how I want it. I mean, instead of embracing righteousness, they're embracing wickedness. Instead of punishing evil, they're punishing those who are trying to speak and do well. Okay? Now, when that happens, and if I have that expectation, how tempting is it for me to put my trust in somebody who promises to deliver what I'm looking for? And I don't know, politicians will do this, and I can compromise because that guy's going to make it the way it needs to be. No, he's not. The king got crucified, okay? So this guy's not going to deliver some kind of thing. We can, we can do it not just with politics. We can think that it is cultural influencers. I see this all the time. Oh, if this person just got saved and they stand up and say they've embraced Jesus, like the whole world's going to fall to its knees. No, it's not. They're no better at sowing the seed than, I don't know, Jesus was. They're just not. The problem is not the seed. The problem is the soil, okay? And we can't change the soil. So we, we can be tempted to do that. Or it's going to be the latest fad. I remember back in the 70s, it was, there was a, a motto going around that, uh, you know, the, the, the motto of Coke at the time was things go better with Coke. So somebody started making bumper stickers, things go better with Jesus. Because Jesus is like sweet, sugary, carbony, fizzy water, Right? And, and literally a marketer said, you know, hey, if the early church would have known what we know about marketing. You see, silly early church, they trusted in the word and the spirit, and we've got marketing. Right? Okay, and again, this is not, we, we are all so tempted by this because if I've got a false expectation and somebody says they can deliver my expectation, that is a powerful temptation. But the problem is my expectation. So Jesus has told us what to expect in the parables, and it's not just that this was going to happen with him, it applies to us. In discussing the parables in Matthew, Matthew records this, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher. Who wants to be like Jesus? And a servant to be like his master. We want that, right? If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, Satan, how much more the members of his household? I think I can skip that part, Lord. So you can't. It's enough to be like our master. And what did they do with our master? They said he was Satan. They said he was out of his mind. They rejected what he was doing and they ultimately, again, spoiler alert, crucified him. And Jesus is here telling us what should we expect. Right? This is, again, not in our Jesus promise book that we hang up on the refrigerator, is it? But it's the reality. Okay? That's the reality. So do my expectations line up with the experience and the teaching of Jesus? That's the first thing this parable is telling us. Now, lest you think I'm going to be a terrible preacher and leave us there and say, what a depressing message. I do want to remind you, is the crucifixion the end of the story? No, it is not. The resurrection is the end of the story. And are the three types of unfruitful seed the end of the parable? No. The fruitful seed is the end of the parable. Okay, but we have to have the expectation. And that leads to the second thing, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Do I see and trust in the power of the Word of God? Do we see and trust in the power of the Word? See, don't miss 
that the seed faces many obstacles. That, that, that story is full of many obstacles. But the seed is powerfully fruitful. And so our hope for fruit is in the Word of God. Not our wisdom, not our power, nor the weapons and ways of this world. Because I remind you, as Greg pointed out today, the very people we want to see brought into the kingdom, are they just asleep? They are dead. Dead in their trespasses and sins. Okay? A marketing campaign is not raising the dead. A big Instagram influencer is not raising the dead. What can raise the dead? The Word of God. Jesus can raise the dead. Nothing else can do it. And so our hope is in the Word, and that leads to two responses from us. Number one, we've got to personally hear and receive the Word. And this is an ongoing thing for us as disciples. I don't, I don't want to get too technical here, but throughout the entire parable, all the verbs about the Word going out and doing this are in what's known as the aorist tense. It's kind of a once-for-all action. But when Jesus gets to verse 20, where he's talking about they hear the word, they receive the word, and it produces fruit, he shifts to the present tense. Only place in the parable where he does it. Because present tense means it's an ongoing activity. How often do I need to hear the word? Every day. How often do I need to be receiving the word? Every day. How often will the word be working and producing fruit in me? Every day day. It's not just once. Yeah, I received the word back in 1978. No. Every day we've got to be taking in the word. To be fruitful, we must keep on hearing, keep on receiving and accepting, and then it will keep on producing fruit in our lives. The example is the manna in the wilderness. When you're out in the wilderness, how often did God give manna? Every day. And how long could you keep the manna? One day, if I keep it tomorrow, remember, it becomes full of maggots and terrible because God said every day you have to go back. Could God have given them manna that would have lasted the whole time? He could have, but he's giving a principle. You need to come daily to receive my word. You need to receive from me every day. So that's the the first message to us. The second message is what we do with the word. You know how American businesses look at this parable? See, Lord, we can help you. You're wasting a lot of seed. Why are you throwing the seed in all those places? Is that not what we look? I mean, have you ever thought about that? What a, what, what's the guy throwing seed on rocky soil for? Why is he throwing it where there's... Why Put the seed in the very good place. But see, that misses the point of the parable. When Jesus comes, who does he spread the word to? Everyone everybody's getting the word. He's, in fact, sitting here explaining it, and who's sitting there among the disciples? Judas. He spreads it. God is a prodigal God. Thanks be to God. I'm really glad when I was dead in my trespasses and sins and had no interest in the kingdom of God, I am sure glad somebody was chunking seed out to me because they were not looking and saying, you know what, this guy looks like a likely convert. No, I didn't. There was nothing in me looked like a likely convert. But God knew. So you know what? Here's good news. You don't have to evaluate soil. Neither do I. It doesn't matter whether I think my neighbor's likely soil or not. Spread the word. Throw it out. It doesn't matter. You know, I've, I've worked with this child forever. Just keep spreading the word. In my own life, I have struggled with it. Just keep spreading the word. We're not here to evaluate soil. We are here to wastefully, foolishly just spread the seed of the kingdom. Throw it out anywhere we can possibly throw it out. And sometimes it will sprout up in the most unlikely of places it will pop up. You know, people like you and me, it will pop up. And so, listen, friends, please hear me. Politicians, cultural influencers, the latest fad are impotent. They cannot bring the kingdom. But you know what's powerful? 
the word of God. And so the Lord says, Ezekiel, valley of dry bones. Can those bones live? You know, Lord. And what does he tell him to do? Speak, Ezekiel. Speak the word of the Lord. So, friends, you live amongst a valley of dry bones, and so do I. And we're just told to speak. It doesn't matter whether it looks like a likely prospect. Speak the word. Cast the word out. And amazingly enough, God will be at work in the most unusual place. And the good news is you're not responsible for the results. Nor am I. Throw the seed. God's the one who will bring forth the increase. So we're going to come to the Lord's table now. And I encourage us to hear, and I'm going to begin by reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, just a couple of verses, as we come to the table and hear what the Lord says regarding his powerful word, and then as we come to the table. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Brothers and sisters, we are here because God's powerful word through that word God has spoken. Was it 35 years ago, Greg? 36 years ago. Okay? God's done that for every one of us. That's why we're here. And so you're invited, if you're a believer, come to the table, taste, and see that the Lord is good. What I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, by your great work in creation and providence, seeds were planted in the ground, they sprouted and grew, producing grain that we might be fed. Because you're a gracious Father, the earth produces even despite our sin. And as Isaiah said, it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Lord, we give you thanks for this great provision, but we are even more thankful for the seed of your word, which has been planted in us so that we have been born again, given new life that will never end. And Lord, through your word and this table, we now receive the work, work of our Lord Jesus anew, giving you thanks for his flesh that was broken for us. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, this cup is filled with the fruit of many vines, which have richly produced grapes for our refreshment. But in the scripture, you tell us that you are the true vine, and we are but the branches drawing our very life from you. Today we freely acknowledge that our deepest thirst is not for physical drink, but the, for the spiritual refreshment that is found only in you. And so Lord, we take this cup with gratitude, giving you thanks for your blood 
by which we are saved, sealed, and secure forever. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. If we can stand together, and we will conclude in prayer. Lord, you have created everything for the sake of your name. And you've given people who are made in your image food and drink to enjoy that they might thank you. But Lord, as your people to whom you have revealed your kingdom, you've given us spiritual food and drink and eternal life through Jesus, your Son. By your Spirit today, we have freshly tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So Lord, now we ask that your Spirit would nurture and protect us that we might bear fruit for you. Satan, this world, and our own desires try to choke out the Word and make it unfruitful, but they will pass away and your Word will endure forever. By your Spirit, empower us to purify ourselves from sin, to hunger and feed upon your Word, and to grow, mature, and bear fruit for your glory this week and until we stand before you face to face. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus, the King, in his name we pray, amen. Amen. I was originally going to do uh, Psalm 67 for a benediction, but as I was praying yesterday, I felt like the Lord was leading to James chapter 1. So I encourage you to receive the blessing of God from this scripture. Brothers and sisters, humbly accept the word that is planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. For brothers and sisters, if we receive the word, you will produce a crop, overflowing blessing and abundance, 30, 60, 100 fold. You're blessed. Go forth and spread God's blessing everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.